This is the first edition of the Bear Fiction Magazine podcast. I'm Robert Harper, editor of the magazine. For a while now, I've been holding on to some great material that we've recorded as part of our various launch events, just waiting for the right moment and a spare bit of time to put it online for you. And with issue three of the magazine coming out very soon and so many great readings already recorded, I'm certain that we can keep you entertained with a weekly selection of fantastic new writing. So please do make sure that you check back every Thursday for the best in new poetry, fiction and plays. Well, who better to start us off than the first ever winner of the Dylan Thomas Prize in 2006 and winner of many other awards since, Rachel Chazice. Rachel wrote a special short story for us called Say Porth Call, which you can read in issue two of the magazine, available to purchase from our website, of course, www.bearfictionmagazine.co.uk. And this recording of Rachel was made on April 30th, 2014, at the Goody Hugh Cafe Bar in Cardiff. She's reading a section of a short story called Punctuation from her collection Cosmic Latte, which is published by Parthian Books. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to read a story called Punctuation. It's set in Berlin in the 60s, so um, it's the first time I've read it, so I apologise in advance for my bad German pronunciation. Beneath her, the familiar sounds of Sunday morning had begun. Her mother lay in the breadboard down on the counter. I'm sorry. Her father arriving back after his walk with the dog, the door latch snapping in the hall. Silka remembered that she had woken briefly a few hours earlier, the damp bed she'd cling into her as her body exuded a fever. She had dreamt of Lars and the way he bawled at her when she told him what she told him. A numb-skulled glossolalia, damp with saliva. She remembered him now, beating the door panel with his fist until it split, his knuckles purpled. Silka, his sister was calling. Silka, you awake? Silka left the warmth of her bed and went in a nightdress to the guest bedroom next door. Ingrid was picking the baby out of the cot. Take him while I dress, she said, passing him to Silka. Silka held the baby at his armpit, sniffing the fragrant scent of his scalp. Sorry. As she padded down the staircase. In the kitchen, she handed him to her mother. The table was set with its usual assortment of condiments and cutlery. I'm so hungry today, she said absently, as she smeared a dollop of raspberry jam onto a hunk of caraway seed brochin. She sat down, shifting in the seat, the wood hard against her pelvis. She was about to bite down when the lumbering silence of the room hit her like the butt of a gun. She looked up at her parents. They were gazing intensely at one another, the baby wriggling against her mother's grip. What? said Silka. They've done it, her father said. The barrier, they've done it. The bread was crushed between Silka's thumb and fingers. She dropped it onto a plate, rubbing her hands clean. After coffee, the sisters took a walk to meet her to see the barrier for themselves, Ingrid pushing the pram. It was nine in the morning, the sun high in the sky. Already the air was warm and moist. Both women were wearing skirts, Ingrid's mustard yellow. Did you buy that in the West? Silka asked her, aware of the gravity of the question. Of course, Ingrid snapped. She considered Silka's dress, quickly eyeing the sweetheart neckline. You? Silka nodded. Frederick Shane Park was still empty, families of squirrels scrambling across the path in front of them. The sisters were quiet again, the only sound the whir of the pram wheels. 
The further they travelled, the faster they walked, their mouths clamped shut, their minds turning over. Of course, Khrushchev had threatened to turn West Berlin into a free city. Nobody believed him. East Berliners kept streaming to the cinemas and theatres in the West, buying subsidised tickets with their devalued East German marks. Silke caught the S-Bahn to the West every day, walking the short distance from Lurta Station back into the East, and her job at Charity Hospital. Nobody really knew where the East ended, where the West began. As they headed out to the park and along the boulevard, they heard the chanting, distant but frequent, carrying on the breeze, Schwein, Schwein. So it was true. They did not look at each other. That would have confirmed it. Instead, they kept walking until they came upon the Brandenburger tour. A row of soldiers stood four feet apart, submachine guns strapped to their chests. Crews of workers in overalls were unrolling long reels of barbed wire and lifting them into the air, sharp, slate-grey stalks of bracken tangling over and around itself. Ingrid squeezed at the handlebar of the pram, her fingers turned white. Silka reached up, massaging her sister's sprung shoulders. It'll be all right, you know, she said. You're married, they let you back in. Ingrid sniffed and lifted her head, forcing the tears back. What about Michael, she said. Sweet, sweet Michael, Silka's fiancé. She'd met him in the first breaths of autumn 1960, 11 months earlier, late on a Friday night at the Café Einstein on Unter Den Linden. That evening, she'd watched Carmen at the Comisk Opera. The opera was a delicacy, her end-of-month treat to herself. She went alone. Lars hadn't the patience to sit for three hours watching anything. Afterwards... She tended to sit at the back of the cafe and drink a single glass of red wine. On that night, she ordered trocken. I'll have the trocken, she said, and then, as the waiter turned on his heel, no, no, the cabernet. The waiter was used to her hesitancy, and he stood waiting while Silka's choice switched back and forth like the pendulum of a metronome. OK, the cabernet. No, the trocken. Actually, what's the taffel wine like? No, never mind, the trocken. Yeah, the trocken. The waiter bowed warily, concurring, and returned to the kitchen. The cafe was busy, and it was half an hour before he brought the wine, by which time the large family on the adjacent table was stubbing out cigars and pooling loose change for a tip. They leaving revealed his face, puckish, grey eyes examining her from beneath the dark, curly fringe. His gaze rested on her for less than a second, then moved on to an artwork above her head. She sipped at her wine, which was dry as a sheet of onion skin. She knew she should have chosen the Cabernet. Surreptitiously, she used her tongue to wet her lips. The man's eyes met her again and then moved, this time to the floor. Over the course of three or four minutes, they continued with this mild, childlike flirtation, Silka concentrating on a specific feature at each glance, the thin veining of silver in his chaotic curls, the blueprint of crow's feet trailing from the corners of his eyes. Soon the game began to wane, and she lifted her wine glass to her mouth, trying to drink, but already the glass was empty. She stamped the base of the glass on the crisp white tablecloth, her lips sneered with disappointment. The man smiled generously at her and raised his hand to order more, the candlelight reflecting in his ivory teeth. "'Join you?' he said, approaching her. "'You're American,' she said, thinking aloud, "'but not a soldier.' "'A professor,' he said, at Humboldt. "'I hail from Ohio, the Midwest.' Silka covered her mouth to giggle at his pronunciation of his home state, Ohio, as if he was about to break into a canzonet. I'm a student at Humboldt, she said flatly as she gained her composure, trying to draw attention to the difference in their ages. She was 22, young enough. He was in his late 30s. 
but the point seemed lost on him. Really? He slid her new wine glass towards her, nonplussed. No, she said, I'm an orderly at the hospital. In the lull that followed, she felt something between them, a kind of flutter against her skin, as if something invisible was brushing the insides of her arms with a feather. It was his eyes. In them, she saw that he would care for her forever. Not love, not yet. Security. It's late, she said, I have to go. I'll walk with you. In fact, he walked two steps behind her, along under Den Linden and onto Prenslauer. A deceptively light rain had begun to fall, licking their faces, his curls matting on either side of his head. Her blouse was sodden, grazing her cleavage. You may turn back now, she said, as they forked onto Danziger Strauss, her family home in sight. As he leant in to kiss her, he smelled of rain and bergamot cologne. Lars worked at the zoo and brought the smell of it home with him, a warm, mown grass scent, not unpleasant, but boyish and rustic. Michael smelled like what he was, a clean, educated man. They saw each other once a week, concerts, theatre, excursions on the lakes. Three months later, they were engaged, but Silk had never recovered from the embarrassment of having tried to drink from that empty glass. Even now, as she stood in front of the hour-old Berlin Wall, her mind's eye skirting over the memory of it, she felt the blush in her cheeks. Maybe if she'd ordered the Cabernet after all, she would not have drunk the whole glass so quickly. He would not have ordered a second glass. She would not have broken Lars heart. Every choice scrutinised, rang of possibilities like a sodden kitchen rug. She could not let anything just roll off her back. Ingrid was staring at her, waiting for an answer. Ingrid liked Michael. Everybody did. He's on a trip at the moment, Silke said, with his students, the words harsher than she meant them. It wasn't the answer Ingrid expected. It wasn't an answer at all. But she took it across the face, frowning at her sister's inability to commit to the severity of the predicament forced on them. Maybe she was too young. On their way back to the house, they saw a notification from the GDR Interior Ministry posted at the entrance to the S-Bahn station, explaining that Easterners would, in the future, be issued with passes to visit the West. Ingrid consoled herself with it. She had to. She had to get back to her husband and apartment. She only came to visit for the weekend. At the end of August, two weeks later, Silke was at, was at work in the hospital. She couldn't take the train into the West anymore. She simply took a longer walk along Invalidenstrauss. Everyone changed their routines accordingly, getting on with life without complaint. The barrier was treated as though it was an act of God, a punishment inflicted on them because of the Nazi crimes. Ingrid was still living at their parents' house. She filled her days writing letters to the GDR authorities. As Silke left the main building for the staff canteen, the rubber soles of her pump squeaking on the new linoleum, the secretary on the reception desk called her back. A message for you, she said, handing Silke the folded notepaper. It was Michael. He was here in the east. He'd crossed through the international border at Zimmerstrauss. He wanted to meet her for lunch. For some reason, the cafe he chose was on Armtier Park, opposite the entrance to the zoological garden. He'd taken a table out front. Silke could see him from yards off, smoking a cigarette, the waiter pouring his Turkish coffee. Why here, she said, coming up behind him. His jaw fell into its customary rictus. He moved quickly to offer her chair, but Silke was quicker, throwing herself into it. Her feet ached from all of the walking. Will you be warm enough, he asked her, his eyes wide with taking her in, his presence so gentle it was as if she was sitting down to eat with an angel, a ghost. It's safer here, he said, his voice as low as his nationality would allow it to go. There are Stasi informers all over the border areas and we need to work out how we're going to get you across and into the West. 
Do we? She asked him. The waiter arrived, pouring Silka's coffee. Michael was silent, sat like a spaniel at a rabbit farm, leaning forward, mouth open. Two days, he said, when the waiter had placed their menus down and left. You could go through the green border, but that's risky. There are snipers on patrol there now, I'd imagine. The other way, the best way, is to use my sister's American passport. Silka was half listening, her eyes focused on the gates of the zoo on the other side of the avenue. The primate house was at the back of the enclosure, out of sight. She imagined Lars filling the chimpanzees' troughs with their dried food pellets, the sunlight catching the blonde hairs on his stubby forearms. There were parts of him that she wanted still, his bumbling energy, the glimmer of cruelty in his eyes when he took the last fresh roll from the table. Michael would never do that. Silka, Michael prompted her. She looked at him once and then back at the yellow-leafed linden trees lining the avenue. A brown paper bag was drifting around in the wind. It caught momentarily on a branch before ripping and unhooking itself, plummeting in a zigzag motion down onto the ground. It landed in the path of a car advancing along the road, perishing under its front tyre. She had to make a choice. The passport, she said, if that's the best way. Do you understand what I'm asking you, he said. If our plan succeeds, you might not ever see the East again. You might not see your parents again. If it fails, they could kill us. We're engaged to be married, aren't we? You can't live here, I'll come to you. She let Michael think that she was choosing him. And she was, but also she was choosing comfort, clothes and cosmetics, trinkets she couldn't buy on this side of the wall. It was another week before the passport arrived in the mail, and then they seemed to cross an axis, the world spinning at breakneck speed. Michael picked a day, a Thursday in mid-September. Silka had to get her hair dyed, blonde, to match Michael's sister's passport photograph. As if to torture herself, she booked an appointment at Udo's on Fritz Langstrauss, where Lars's sister, Ulla, was an apprentice hairstylist. She was 17 years old, plump, a female translation of her older brother. She was wearing her assistant's tunic, brushing thick curlicues of grey hair round on the floor. She sat Silka in the leather seat and draped a towel around her shoulders, smiling at her through the mirror. Silka wondered if she recognised her, and if she did, had she forgiven her for her betrayal of her brother, or was she simply trying to be professional? She smiled back at Ula. It has to be golden blonde, she said, blinking, like honey, not too light. Ula patted Silka's shoulder. I'm not qualified to use the dye, she said. My colleague will do it. I'll be back to wash it out. She returned to the front of the shop, taking up the sweeping brush, moving the grey spirals around on the parquet. Silka sat obediently in the chair while an older woman painted the gluey lilac paste onto her mousy hair, the faint whiffle of pop music from a radio in the back blurred by static. Silka reached now and searched now and then through the mirror for Ula and the cow's lick on her left cranium, which was the cow's lick on Lars's left cranium. She'd hoped that the bleach would turn her into a new person, the kind who could cut her memories off as if with a scissors. Today was the day. She was embarking on an adventure. She needed stamina, pluck, but in the mirror it was herself looking back, the same reluctant silka with a new hair colour. She gave a generous tip, not to the stylist, but to Ula. She took the girl's fleshy face in her hands and pecked her noisily on the mouth. For your brother, she said, running out of the salon, a tsunami of adrenaline budding in her guts. The girl stared after her, eyes crossing with a happy confusion. At four that afternoon, Silka met Michael in the press cafe near Frederick, Frederick Strauss station. 
The room was clotted with cigarette smoke and after-work repartee. Michael sat on a high stool in the window, the newspaper obscuring his face. Your clothes, he asked as she joined him. He had asked her to make sure that all of her clothes, even her underwear, came from the West in the event of a body search. Silka nodded. Michael looked tired as he stood up, the flute in at his eyes deeper than usual. A drink for the road, he asked her. He meant a drink for the barrier, a drink for the checkpoint, perhaps the last drink of their lives. Vodka, she said. No gin, no vodka, no gin. She brought a fingernail to her mouth, champing down on it. Vodka, she said, and Michael left for the bar before she could change her mind. He came back with two drinks. They gazed tentatively at one another while they took long sips. They stood now in the midst of the crowded cafe, the bases of their glasses almost colliding as they swallowed. The colour suits you, he said, lying, once he drained his glass. Silka didn't reply. Are you ready? he asked. Frederick Strauss was empty, the sun at its lowest point. Let's go through your English one more time, he said, as they rounded a corner, their footsteps leaden, their knee bones turned to iron. My name is Andrea Shields, she said. The pronunciation was perfect, but the accent was wrong. They should have practised more. I live in Dayton, Ohio. I work at... OK, Michael said, stopping her. He was so nervous he could hardly breathe. Her talking was making it worse, his lungs aching for sustenance. Suddenly, Silka realised that she, that she still had some East German money on her. She should have given it all to Ulla. She tossed the notes into the grass of a vacant lot, and then they walked on. A uniformed guard was posted next to the last building in East Berlin, his body casting a comically long shadow across the cobbles. He saw them approaching. It was too late to turn around. Silka opened her handbag to take out the passport. She was about to hand it to the guard when it jumped out of her hands, landing on the ground. The three of them dived down simultaneously to pick it up. When they'd straightened, they were all smiling, the passport clamped in the guard's gloved hands. The guard studied the passport photograph and glanced at Silka. Silka spied around at the city behind her, hoping perhaps to encounter Lars and a last-minute reprieve. Of course, the street was bare and dim. The guard swapped passports, looking from Michael's photograph to Michael and back to the photograph again. OK, that's not the end of the story, but I'm going to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the first edition of the Bear Fiction Magazine podcast. Next week, I'll be bringing you some poetry from Bethany W. Pope. If you're on social media, talk to us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Bear Fiction. And as I mentioned earlier, you can order our magazine in print and digital formats from our website, www.bearfictionmagazine.co.uk. The music for this podcast was Sidewalk Shade by Kevin McLeod and is provided under a Creative Commons license. I'm Robert Harper. I hope you'll join me again next time. Bye.